Hello there. Welcome to my publication, Princess and the PSE, the Survivor Edition, where we explore life's tests as we move along in our path towards healing from trauma. Thanks for being here. My name is Faith Christine Bergevin. You can call me Faith. In today's podcast, we explore the chaos that burns within when we've had a deeply disturbing experience. I share about my own internal chaos in the aftermath of rape and the truths I learned about myself and my relationships with others. And I invite you to consider the chaos within you and how you can start to address it. Let's begin. What burns in you on harnessing your internal chaos. One must still have chaos in oneself to be able to give birth to a dancing star. Frederick Nietzsche. My therapist read me this Nietzsche quote one time at the end of a session. It was in the early aftermath of my traumatic rape. He read it, then looked at me quizzically. I think you understand this quote better than I do, he said. This man, this therapist, who saw me through many changes over the years, was in his final year before retirement. He was in his 70s, working only a couple of days a week as far as I knew. I saw him once a week, sometimes twice. He was my rock during a profoundly turbulent time. As the words began to tumble out of my mouth while I tried to make sense of the senseless, this man was there, sitting with me, sometimes crying with me, sometimes crying for me while I sat there baffled and unable to cry. He was trying to help me understand, trying to ground me in an understanding that was slow to arrive. I could not see for a long time. I held on to a belief about myself and the man who hurt me that I could not let go of, as is often common for those who have experienced intimate partner violence. This man, had given me things I'd longed for in my life, things I didn't believe existed, an erotic connection that took me places I didn't know was even there. He was present in a way others weren't and an extremely good listener. I didn't have anyone to listen to me at the time in my everyday life. I was the listener. I was the helper for my clients and for my children who I was raising in the aftermath of divorce and all the, rubber, all the rubble there. I didn't want to let go, not at all, because of all he had given to me, all he'd been for me up until that day. I can't imagine what my therapist thought each time I showed up expressing my love. It must have been disturbing and possibly depressing for him. He tried to reach me in all sorts of ways, even appealing to the therapist in me, imploring me to see the man objectively as I might a client. I could put on my therapist hat, for a while at least, and see all the problems, all the issues this man ha had, all the harm he did. I could see it objectively, but still I couldn't let go. I did not want to let go because letting go meant losing all I'd thought was true, all I'd learned, all I still felt. Despite his efforts, my therapist could not quite reach me, and I remained in the dark for a long time. This is the problem with intimate partner violence. 
and why women have such a hard time leaving when they are in an abusive situation. There are many emotional, physical, neurobiological, and socioeconomic factors that cannot be adequately summarized in one essay. Saying this topic is complex is a profound understatement. This experience, the aftermath of what I learned about my ability, or rather inability to let go, introduced me to the depth of the chaos that lived within me. I had thought mostly that everything was nice and neat, having taken graduate studies in counseling psychology, where I learned the theories of therapy, as well as research on effective therapeutic techniques, and it was all so simple. Just apply these techniques to clients I have built a supportive relationship with, and they're good to go. It's not that simple. Being a survivor of such a betrayal has taken me into depths unknown. I began to see truths about myself and others. I learned the disturbing lesson that sex is not simple and casual, no matter what people say, and that choosing who I let into my life is not a straightforward decision. I let the wrong person in, even though at the time, it seemed like a fun thing to do, to have a break from the complicated and demanding load of graduate school, raising children and working as an unpaid intern. I had a full life that was full of responsibility. The fling with that man was supposed to be fun, simple, and good. The reality is that relationships can be simple and good if you and the other person are on the same page with regards to communication, respect, and an understanding of boundaries and consent. I hadn't really thought much about it. Yes, I knew about it all intellectually. In some ways, I took it for granted. These were con concepts that made sense to me and came naturally in how I treated others as well as in other experiences in my past. But the reality of the moment, when consent was broken in a heinous way that was so quick, so jarring, no one can prepare you for that. The result of the traumatic event was an eruption into inner chaos that eventually, once the acute pain subsided, turned into an exploration of how it all came to be. This is not an entry point into blaming myself. Victim blaming is one of the horrifying outcomes in a culture that refuses to look at itself. But the healing that came of this experience was born out of the chaos. Life's test. Back then, I kept saying to life, but if only he knew, if only he understand, understood, if only he worked with me, we could sort it out. But then life kept saying back to me, no, he's not coming back. He's not good for you. Now life says, be careful who you bond to. Oh, and here are other instances where men violate your boundaries and you keep being silent when it happens. It's a challenging thing, undoing the damage from a traumatic event that muted you. Because what often happens during a traumatic event, such as rape, is that the speech centers shut off. And therefore, the parts of the brain that help you organize your thoughts and spur you into action, those stop working. And you become dissociated into an inner space that has one intention that looks like a thought, but is actually an instinctual response. How do I keep alive? I'm still figuring out this part of me the speaking part that mutes itself in the face of sometimes minor, sometimes major boundary violations. 
trauma expert and author Gabor Mate might offer that in the moment, the split second it happens, I'm choosing attachment over authenticity, and he might be right. It seems I automatically choose my perceived connection to this person rather than my true feelings about who they are or what they did. I still find myself being too nice when I am surprised, as a recent experience showed. It's my ongoing life test. Life calls me to ask, who are you going, what are you going to do with this, this challenge that creates chaos within you, that burns in you? How do you answer life's relentless tests? It's a challenge to change our programmed responses from trauma, but not impossible. So now I invite you to ponder these questions as you look at the tests life gives you in your own life. I ask you, what chaos burns in you? There is something inside you, your own personal chaos, a challenge that calls you, that life keeps testing you with. It could be due to the implosion of a relationship, losing your job, difficulties with your children, or the realization that the life you have created may not be going the way you hoped. Ask yourself. And once you've identified your own personal chaos, see if you can take it a step further. See if you can name it. Take out a piece of paper and write some specific words that come to you. You can write them in a column or scatter them all over the page in true chaos form. And now ask yourself, what is one thing I can do to deal with this chaos now or this week? There may be a lot there, but if you can address one of them, how about the easiest one? you can perhaps move towards sorting through the chaos and begin to create some order. Bonus question. Once you can feel and name your own internal chaos, what can you do with it? What burns within you to do? The chaos that burns in me has shifted dramatically from those early days post-rape when I worked with my therapist. There's deeper clarity and a new order within that has come with the processing I have done. I also have a strong sense of compassion for all that younger me went through then. I try to maintain that compassion for myself now for the work I continue to do. The chaos still burns within, but its pull is taking me in another direction. No longer a force pulling me downward into despair, it now calls me to do something different in my life. It calls me to my own dancing star. This star is a beacon that beckons me to a place where life's tests offer new challenges born out of hope while gradually extinguishing the old ones born out of fear. How about you? How can you harness your internal chaos so you can give birth to your own dancing star? Thank you for listening. I just want to add that this essay that I wrote is dedicated to my former longtime therapist whose steadfast belief in me and support for me during a profoundly challenging time meant more than I could ever describe 
and I'm incredibly grateful and thankful. And now for the portion where I share uh, the footnotes for our listeners here that don't have the written essay in front of them. So um, I have 10 footnotes. It's a lot. Um, and we'll get through it. Uh, my first footnote is really from the very beginning, beginning of the piece where I say um, I was in recovery from my traumatic rape. And that might seem redundant because rape by definition is traumatic. Um, but I think it's worth stating this for those who do not understand how horrific rape from a romantic partner or anyone is. It takes so much from you that cannot be adequately explained. And while I don't want to go into a debate of what's worth a stranger rape or a romantic partner rape, we can't go there. That's not fair to anybody. I will say that it being a romantic partner has another layer because that has relationship, that has built trust, that has a developing bond, and in some times, in some cases, um, a growing love and affection. And so having that be violated is a relational trauma, trauma over and above the physical and sexual violation. Um, my second footnote talks about um, the cycle of violence. It's the traumatic bond that happens between two people um, when there's intimate partner violence. Um, the cycle of violence, you can just Google it. There's, um, and, and I do have a footnote here with a link uh, just to the wiki page showing the cycle of violence and it's like honeymoon to honeymoon phase to the tension building phase to the aggressive phase to the makeup phase and it's just a cycle that is um, very harmful and um, stems from an inequality in the relationship a power imbalance this is not about having fights and making up you know, from two flawed people who are really trying to work together. It's about one person trying to control another um, through many means. Um, my third footnote is that women are disproportionately victims of intimate partner violence. And the WHO has a statistic that there's a global lifetime prevalence at 30%. My fourth footnote uh, references the difficulty women have in leaving an abusive relationship and the national domestic hotline states it takes a victim seven times to leave before staying away for good. So one of my pet peeves or rather my mission here is to educate on how hard it can be for someone to leave uh, for many reasons. And um, it's too much to go in one essay but, you know, that statistic that it takes a victim seven times to leave speaks to the difficulties in, in leaving an abusive relationship. Uh, my fifth footnote is still on the same topic about how hard it is to leave. I believe all these footnotes were in the same short paragraph. Um, yes. Uh, and it's the paragraph where I say there are many emotional, physical, neurobiological, and socioeconomic factors. 
uh, involved. And so to address the neurobiological factors, um, I, I want to point out that it's not only women who are economically disadvantaged who are prone to staying longer in an abusive situation. Um, Dr. Larry Young does interesting research on the neuroscience of chemistry and sexuality, showing how women can bond to men through sex due to powerful biological reasons. So connect, women connecting to men sooner than men do in reverse due to bonding hormones like oxytocin and the mere fact that women open to men. And so when women receive men in our bodies, we do bond quicker um, than men in reverse. And there's neurobiological reasons for that. Um, moving on to my sixth footnote. Where is it? Okay, um, it's back to referencing being a survivor of this betrayal and taking me into depths unknown. Um, rape is devastating, so much more than the word betrayal can convey as the harm is on all levels of a person. It's not only the body, the sexuality, it's also the mind and the emotions and the spirit. Because if you felt connected to someone, there was something else happening there. And this is a devastating experience for someone. Um, but when it comes down to it, the best word I have for describing the, the feelings after is a feeling of betrayal. Uh, my seventh footnote has to do with victim blaming. So this is so rife in society. I mean, it's less now, thank goodness, because more people are speaking up. But society really has a lot to learn about trauma and the weight survivors carry. If people only knew the pain the victims of such a crime carry with them, they may not be so quick to judge or assign blame to them and more likely to shift blame where it belongs, on the perpetrator, you know, the one who did it. My eighth footnote is about, um, well, it references Bessel van der Kolk's uh, New York Times bestseller from 2014, The Body Keeps the Score. He keeps ending up on, his book keeps ending up on the top of the bestseller list because it's a really good one. And in this book, he describes research on the traumatized brain and what happens in the moment of trauma, that the person goes into literal survival mode, essentially responding in an instinctual way like an animal, and the Broca's area, that area in the brain that creates words, creates speech, actually shuts down. So there are no words. Uh, my ninth footnote is uh, sort of following that, what happens in the trauma response. So the instinct at the time of trauma is not a thinking process. A lot of times people think it is. People think, well, why didn't she say no? Why didn't she get up and leave? Why didn't she start yelling? You know, <laughs> and people don't understand that in the moment of trauma, we're at the level of instinct, we're at the level of animal. And so this instinct is not a thinking process, but is thought to be a combination of partly programmed societal responses, which Jim Hopper has a good piece on this, and the lizard brain jumping into action, which can all, often result in inaction, which I'll explore more in the future. So societal responses, um, and what I'm referencing, referencing is, um, 
how women are socialized to be nice, to be polite, to be sweet and friendly. And why don't you smile a little for me? So women are constantly told by society that we need to be polite and pretty and accommodating. Well, in the moment of trauma, in the moment of rape, these societal responses are actually programmed into our system to not actually fight back because society's told us we have to be nice all the time. Combine that with the lizard brain jumping into action, which is how do I survive in this moment? And you've got like a response that is often in action or the freeze response. And so uh, just to say for people who are interested, it's Dr. Jim Hopper. It's his piece uh, in the Washington Post. And I believe, let, let's see, I'll just make sure I give you the right title. Why Many Rape Victims Don't Fight or Yell, dated June 23rd, 2015, by Dr. James uh, Hopper. Um, okay, we're at the final footnote, and it's about Gabor Mate. He has a famous uh, saying about authenticity and attachment. And so um, Gabor Mate speaks about authenticity and attachment, that giving up our authenticity is often a survival response in children in order to remain attached to our parental figures, making it necessary. It can then become a pattern of people-pleasing, a giving to the other to protect ourselves. So it takes a concerted effort to begin to shift out of this habit so that we come from our own personal authenticity and trusting that this act will lead to connections with others who embrace us for who we actually are instead of for what we do for them. So that's the conclusion of uh, my footnotes, the conclusion of my piece here, uh, What Burns in You. Um, I appreciate you being here and listening. Um, this is a really big piece. I, I touch on a lot of different things that have to do with trauma, and um, I hope you found it helpful and informative. And um, please leave a comment if you've heard this on Spotify or on Apple Podcast. Um, I appreciate comments. Um, the more comments I have, the more um, sort of Apple and Spotify spread the word to other people who might find this helpful. And uh, consider uh, becoming a subscriber on my Substack page, The Princess and the Pea. I'd love to have you here. Bye for now.